Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. There we go. That's better. Hello, everyone else. <laughs> um, if I haven't met you yet, I'm Chris. Uh, my wife, Jen, and I, we're the pastors here, which is lots of fun. We love it. Um, and we are, we're, we've, we've kind of had a bit of a whirlwind for the last month with National Conference. We had two weeks of National Conference. Last week, we had Putty Putman um, come and share a message, which was just amazing. Like I hi- We've got the recording up on the website. Highly recommend you go have a listen to that. Um, and then we had Kirk and Nick Delaney, who are, they, they head up the vineyard movement in Australia. We had them the week before, which was really fun. So you actually have to go back three weeks if you're going to remember the series that we're doing at the moment, or alternatively, you can look up on the screen uh, where it says it. But we're, we're doing this series at the moment called Imago Day. And Imago Day, for uh, the non-Latin nerds around us, means the image of God. And we're talking about these really fundamental questions that sit not just at the core of our, our faith, but at the core of human existence. The questions of who am I and why am I here? And uh, I've got a little slide that sort of gives you a, a bit more of a sense of the... Yes, it worked. I've got a slide that gives you a bit more of a sense of kind of where we're at in this series. So uh, the first week I opened us up, we, we started with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we had a bit of a look at, at the foundations, how... How did God create us? Um, what is our created purpose? And how did that break at the fall? And then the next week, uh, the wonderful Mandy Anderson, she um, absolutely crushed it. She gave us a, uh, a bit of an overview of what has Christ done? How has Christ redeemed what happened at the fall? And she talked about the way that um, the Apostle Paul says that we've been taken from death into life that the sinful nature is gone and that we have new life through Christ, which is really incredible. And so after a two-week break due to National Conference, we're now back and we're, we're asking the question, what do we do now? So as people, if we've had this fundamental transformation at the core of our being into the likeness of Christ, this, this internal transformation, but first, I want to talk to us a little bit about men's fashion. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Now, to be fair, it's not quite men's fashion, but I do, I do enjoy a bit of suits. Uh, I do enjoy a good suit as well. Uh, but rather than talking about men's fashion, I kind of actually want to talk more about fashion psychology. Now, I studied uh, psychology as an undergraduate uh, and absolutely loved it. And I was kind of one of those kids that I, I just didn't care what I wore. Like, I was just happy to wear whatever was at the top of the pile. Um, but when I was at uni, I discovered that actually clothing makes more of a difference to the way that we think than some of us would like to believe. And so fashion psychology is basically the study of how does what we wear affect the way that we think and others think about us. So I want to I say three things about this. The first one is, um, I don't know if you've been to many weddings. Uh, Jen and I have been to quite a few. But what you tend to find at... Uh, at weddings is that there's, there's at least two categories of people. There's normally one person who on one side is like 
has, has like a beautiful bespoke tailored suit, has these incredible shoes that somehow have no scuffs anywhere on them, uh, has like a, a, a lovely watch and like perfect hair, and you just you look at them and, and I, I just go like, wow, you are immaculately dressed. Well done, you. Um, but then on the other side, you've got, you, you have that kind of generally like weird uncle who sort of, <laughs> who sort of like comes to a wedding in like, in sort of like baggy shorts and like a college, uh, uh, like a polo shirt, and that's sort of like the wedding attire. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not here to make a value judgment either way. Don't hear me making, you know, there's, there's a, a strong case for the, uh, the weird uncle too. You, you think as you all know who like someone who's like that, right? Um, but you, the, the, the point is that, um, or what I'm trying to draw out of this, is that if it's not so much who's better dressed, but the way that you're going to interact if you talk with the guy in the immaculate suit is a little bit different to the way that you're going to talk to the guy, to the weird uncle, right? The clothes that they're wearing, it actually makes, for better or for worse, make a significant way in the, in, in the way that we interact with people. Um, and it's, and there's, there's tons of psychology that will tell us that. But not only does what we wear affect the way that other people perceive us, and this is why I wore a collared shirt today, right? I almost never wear collared shirts, but I'm like, I'm talking about this, I should look at least passable. Um, so the, so, so there's that, that, that's one thing. The next thing about fashion psychology, as much as the clothes that we wear um, affect the way that other people see us, the, the clothes that we wear actually really affect the way that we perceive ourselves, which is really interesting. Now, Jen and I, we both work two days a week um, here in the Northridge office. So Wednesday, Fridays are our, our church days. And then Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, I work uh, for myself. I run a little business. I do graphic and web design. And uh, what I have discovered, well, what I learned very quickly uh, when I was working for myself, working from home, especially in light of my psychology studies, is that the way that I dress when I'm working for home actually has a makes a massive difference to my productivity. So I find that on the days where I, I kind of get up, have a shower, um, like put some clothes on that I would actually wear to work, as opposed to just staying in my pyjamas, I find that I have a much more productive day than if I just stayed in my pyjamas. And there's a whole lot of psychology that backs that up. That the, way, the clothes that we wear actually not only affect what others think about us, but the way that we perceive ourselves. There's a third kind of category of... Um, of fashion psychology that's, that, that's also really interesting, and this is the idea of uniforms. So what are, I don't just mean school uniforms. I mean, like, if someone comes to church wearing a Wallabies jersey, then you can have a reasonably strong sense that they're probably interested in rugby because that's, it, it's a uniform. And uniforms are, are interesting because they, they're an, an outward piece of clothing that give a very strong uh, indication of something that's internal. So, for example, that person's passion for rugby. Another example that's quite profound is when you put someone in a prison jumpsuit, it's not just an item of clothing, it actually, this prison jumpsuit, it reflects something about that person's state of being. It tells you about their state of freedom. It tells you that they've probably done something in their past. It gives you a, it gives you a sense of, of who they are, they are. But when you if you've been in prison and you come out of prison, you don't keep wearing a prison jumpsuit, do you? Because there's been a significant change that's happened. You've gone from being enslaved to being free. And so in that sense, clothing can actually have a really powerful impact on reminding ourselves of our state of being. 
Now, why have I spent almost five minutes of my talk talking about clothing? Other than the fact that I really enjoy men's fashion, um, we're about to read a passage in the scriptures where Paul actually uses clothing as an analogy for how we're supposed to live our lives. So if you have a Bible, um, open it up. This is, this is one of the talks where it'll be handy to have a Bible in front of you because we're going to kind of dig into the, the passage a little bit. So the, the chapter is Ephesians 4, starting from 17. While you're pulling it out, um, the book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Now, at the time of writing, Ephesus was kind of like the religious capital of the Roman Empire. And I don't mean like, uh, the, like Christian and Jewish. I mean like the Roman religion and, and all, all the pagan gods. And he's writing to this group of people, and he spends the first three chapters of his letter, his letter really hammering home the message of the gospel. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, there's a, there's a therefore, and the, uh, the, the book takes a really significant swing, and, and 4, 5, and 6 all about if this is the gospel, then how are we to live as a result? So let's start reading from verse 17. And I'm going to read from the NLT, because I just love the way that it renders this, but... Follow along in whichever version you have. With the Lord's authority I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, the actual line of reasoning, it continues pretty much the whole way through to uh, Ephesians 6, but we're just going to pause there. And I just want to really quickly recap this whole, this whole verse, um, or this, this, this whole scripture we've just read. It kind of hangs on verses 20 through to 24. So I just want to read that again, and I want you to notice this analogy of, of, of taking off your old self and putting on your new self. It says, That isn't what you learn about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from him, 
throw off, there it is, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So I want to spend the rest of this message going through quite simply two things. First of all, what does it mean to take off our old self? And secondly, what does it mean to put on our new self? Now, if we're thinking about putting off our old self, I think there's a really important discussion uh, which, I'm gonna, which, which we need to have right at the start uh, before we get too much further in. Versus, it's, it can be really confusing sometimes reading through the New Testament. You get verses like, for example, in Romans 6.14, uh, it sums up so much of the argument in this section of Romans. Uh, Paul says, you are no longer under the law, but grace. And so the scriptures make it very clear, the New Testament makes it very clear that putting off your old self doesn't mean going back to following the law. But then we get these passages like the ones that we've just read that seem to contain all of these instructions for things that we are and aren't supposed to do. So maybe the solution is that we take some parts of the law that are still relevant and we drop other parts of the law that aren't relevant. But the problem with that is that if, we, if you read through Galatians chapter 5, there's this whole discussion that Paul has with uh, the Galatians about, um, about circumcision, uh, which was a very, very important Jewish ritual. And there were all these people who were trying to tell the church that they, they were supposed to keep doing circumcision. And so Paul's writing to them and, and arguing against that, and he says that if if they continue to practice circumcision, then they are therefore obligated to obey the whole law. So Paul's saying very clearly, we're not meant to take part of the law and keep doing that and, and, and get rid of the rest of it. Actually, the whole law has been fulfilled in Christ. Now, if you want to read more about that, I, I highly recommend you read through the book of Galatians because we don't have time to go through all of that here. But there's... You know, I, I believe that there is this religious spirit that will not go in the church. We see it in the Pharisees. We, we, we see it through, uh, through so much of the scriptures. Um, but I believe there are some of us here um, who've come here tonight who we're talking about um, how we're supposed to live as Christians. We're talking about letting go of sin and stepping into, into righteousness and, and all that Christ has for us. And some of us have come here with this, this deep underlying belief that we just can't shake. Um, somehow our behavior, that the things that we've done um, are separating us from God, that there are these sins that we've committed that, can't, um, that, that overrule the grace of Christ. Um, and that somehow the law still applies to us. But I just want to say up front that that religious spirit has no place here. It has no place here. Christ has set you free for freedom's sake. We are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And I, I feel like whenever we have a discussion about Christian living, it, it can be really easy to, to kind of fall to that extreme of believing that we actually do still have to follow some of the law. So I want to say it really clearly up front that that's not the case. This is where this, this clothing analogy comes in really helpful. Because the question remains, if we're not supposed to follow the law, then why does our behavior matter at all? And... This is where, the, where this clothing analogy comes in really helpful because as, as Mandy told us a few weeks ago, the, the, old, the sinful part of us is dead. 
That was dealt with. It's gone. We have a new identity in Christ. We are, we are alive in Christ. And because of this incredible inward transformation that's happened in our hearts, why would we not dress appropriately to that? If we have been set free from prison, why would we continue to live in a way as if we were still in there? So what does this actually look like in practice, this putting off your old self? Uh, what does a New Testament version of that look like? There's, uh, when, when we go from verses 25 and onwards, um, Paul kind of illustrates this by uh, giving us a few examples, some things that uh, we should put off as part of our old nature. And so I want to go through two of those examples now. The first one is anger, which we find in verses 26 to 27. Now, it's really interesting, um, depending on which version of the Bible you read, this, this, this may or may not come out, but let me read this passage from the NIV and then compare it to the New King James Version. In the NIV, it says, uh, in your, so verse 26 starts, In your anger do not sin. But in the New King James Version, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Isn't that interesting? You see, it kind of blew my mind when I realized that the Bible doesn't actually specifically say that anger itself is a sin. And in fact, um, verse 26, which is actually a direct quote from Psalm 4, Paul is saying here, echoing the words of David, saying, Be angry, but do not sin. And so what do we, what do we actually do with that? Because, you know, I'd even go as far as to say that there are, there are times in our Christian journey when it's probably actually more sinful to not be angry. You know, when you come face to face with oppression and injustice, I think a righteous response to that is actually anger. And, you know, I think sometimes we, sometimes we think as we, we try to work out what it means to live as Christians that we sort of have to cast aside all of our extreme emotions. We have to push them down and, and suppress them and become these kind of stoic beings. But, but that's not the case. You see, I actually think emotions can be incredibly useful things. Um, Maddie, a few weeks ago, Maddie did a, a talk about the Psalms. And I love the way he, he illustrated the concept of desire. Uh, and it mentions desires uh, in, in when, it, when he's doing the clothing analogy, the desires that boil within us. Um, but there are, these, there are these kind of deep down in the core of who we are, there are, these, there are these desires. Some of them are helpful, some of them are not helpful. But every now and then, when we get put in a certain situation, one of those desires kind of pops up. And often you're not expecting it. And that's what we call our emotions. And what I think sometimes we think we're supposed to do is we're, try, we're supposed to kind of push that down and keep that below the surface. But what's actually much more helpful is to, to address the emotion and say, okay, well, what's, what's happening inside me? Why has, why has this particular situation caused that desire to kind of pop up to the surface? And we realize that emotions can be incredibly useful things for telling us, helping us respond to the situation that we're in. We have this, uh, in, the, in the Northridge leadership team meetings, we have this funny thing we do. Um, so this is when we meet with Phil and Kath and the other community pastors. We realize that we, we have like quite an emotional bunch of people. And we often are making quite big decisions quite quickly. And what happens sometimes is you can make a decision, but someone has this sort of churning feeling inside the stomach going, that doesn't sit right with me for some reason. And so we have this rule where if we're, making, if we're sort of brushing past a decision, you can put your hand up and you can say, I have a feeling 
And what that does is, is that says, well, I don't, I don't fully understand what's happening here yet, but when, when you said that, it just, it's kind of done something to me, and I'd like to explore that a little bit more before we move on. And it's actually been so helpful because it means that we're not overlooking people. People aren't feeling left out. And we're actually learning how to use our emotions as really helpful indicators of how we're supposed to move forward. So the question is, where does anger become a problem? Well, it's two things the scripture has to say about that here. Uh, the first one is that it says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Uh, now, a good friend of mine before Jen and I got married said that that means that you just stay up all night arguing. Uh, which I disagree with, as it happens. Um, but what I think the Scripture is trying to say here is that um, don't, don't let it go. Don't, don't harbour your anger. Identify it. Use it in the most useful possible way. And you generally find that when you, when you actually put your anger somewhere, when you turn your anger into something productive, the feeling goes away. You don't push it down. Um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting here, and I love the way that the NLT renders this, uh, if we go back into verse 26, it says, don't sin by letting anger control you. And so the question is, when it comes to anger, is anger in control of you or are you in control of it? And to me, I think that's a pretty good measuring stick to work out that your anger has gone from being a useful emotion to channel into pro productive uh, work or it's become sinful. The second thing that I wanted to, to draw out of this passage is if we skip over to verse 29, uh, it says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Now, it's worth having a quick read of how this renders in the NIV as well because it seems to say something slight, slightly different. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up and according to their needs, etc. Now, this is kind of, a, a lot of people have kind of taken this as the, the go-to proof text, text in the scriptures to suggest that swearing is not a, a good idea for Christians. And I, I certainly don't think that that's an incorrect interpretation. Uh, it's not my interpretation, but I think swearing is actually, if we're trying to work out how we're supposed to live as Christians, I think swearing is a really interesting little microcosm uh, for, for this, isn't it? Because aside from this passage, and one other passage a little bit further in, in Ephesians 5, it's, it's pretty difficult to make a case that swearing as a Christian is inherently wrong. Now, if you're really upset with me for saying that, let's talk about that after the talk. But, <laughs> but the important but here is if, we're, if we are put, taking off uh, the, the, the old self, and we're putting on the new self, then the question stops being, is this a sin or isn't this a sin? The question starts being, is this reflective of who I am now? And so for me personally, I choose not to swear uh, because I just, I don't, for me personally, and I'm going to leave this in your hands, but for me personally, I don't feel that that reflects who I am. But I'm going to leave that up to you and the Holy Spirit. Make sure you ask him about it. So what, what's the point in all of this? What is, what's he actually trying to get across? Well, I think that the, the verse that really clinches all of this for me and helps me to understand it is verse 30. And I just bring, again, I love the way the NLT translates this. It says, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own. 
guaranteeing that you'll be saved on the day of redemption. It goes straight back into what we were saying right at the start. The, through the Holy Spirit uh, and through Jesus' saving work, who we are has fundamentally changed. When we encounter Jesus, the old person is gone and the new person has come. We are clothed with righteousness that Christ gives us. And we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so what this verse is, is it's almost inviting us to think about, do our words and actions reflect the Holy Spirit that's within us? When we act or when we speak, does the Holy Spirit say, oh, yes, that was good, or does the Holy Spirit cringe? I think this, this question that we sometimes find ourselves, uh, the questions that we find ourselves wrestling with sometimes are, is this thing a sin or is this not a sin? But the problem with asking a question in that way is it sort of assumes that God has this kind of like list of good and bad things uh, and you're sort of trying to figure out which list it's on. And in some senses, that list used to exist in the Old Testament. They called it the law. But like Paul says, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And so a better question to ask is, how would the Holy Spirit feel about this? Is what you're wearing reflecting who you are? So that's how we take off our old self. The good news is that God doesn't leave us there. Um, he actually he doesn't just tell us, here are all the things that you can't do. He actually invites us into something better. And in some ways, I think this invitation is almost more important than what we're leaving behind. I think if we fix our eyes on what's ahead, uh, it's going to be so much, so much better for us. But what does it actually mean to put on the new self? Well, I want to suggest two things that it isn't. And the first one is that it's not self-denial. You see... It can be, I've sort of already said it, but it can be really easy to read through some of these lists in the, in the New Testament and go, well, he's kind of just telling us not to do all of the fun things. But what he is inviting us to instead, um, if we look at 5 verse 1, is he says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. So it's not just this sense of you can't do all of these things, but it's actually here's a better life. There's a new way to be human that is being offered to you, why don't you take that? The second thing that putting on your new self doesn't look like is it doesn't look like doing anything in our own strength. I want to draw our attention back to two really, really subtle things that I think it would be very easy to miss as we read through this passage. The first one is in verse 23. It says, Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Now, I don't know about you, but for me personally, I know there's a lot of thoughts and attitudes in my life that need renewing. But the call is not for us to go away and fix ourselves and then come into the presence of God. It says really explicitly here, let the Spirit, let the Spirit, it's almost a command, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. And the second thing is this, um, verse 24, it says, put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Do you notice that it's, it says here, not being created, but created to be like God. You see, this new nature has actually already been made for you. You don't have to figure out what it looks like. This new nature that you're putting on, it already exists. 
And we find it in Jesus. You see, this, this process of putting on our new nature, it's not about what striving to be more Christ-like. It's actually about partnering what, with, with what God is already doing in your life. God is already working. And our job is not to, to invent some new way of fixing ourselves, but just to see what he's already doing and partner with that. So I want to I finish, and we've got heaps of time for ministry, which is awesome. I actually want to finish um, by bringing us, I've, I've mentioned it a few times, but by heading back to Galatians chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible open near you, why don't you just open that up? Galatians chapter 5. You see, I think this, this passage talks about letting the Spirit through the hard work in you. And I think one of the best pictures we have of what it looks like, what that, that process looks like, it comes from Galatians 5. It says in verse 22, and I'm, I'm actually going to read this whole, this whole chapter over us because I think it just it so clinches what we're trying to say. Um, but in verse 22, it says, The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Uh, Jen and I, a few years ago, we got this lime tree. And uh, Jen's a bit of a, becoming a bit of a green thumb, which I love. Um, I'm very much not a green thumb. I got a basil plant, and I really, really nearly killed it. And then Jen kind of just took over looking after it. I still think it's my basil plant, but she does all the hard work. Um, but this, uh, this lime tree, it, it really struggled for the first, like, probably year that we had it. Um, we, uh, you know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't really growing and, um, you know, it was just, it was kind of struggling away. And then when we went away, it was for two weeks, we asked our neighbour to come and water all our plants for us. And then when we came back, this lime tree was flourishing. And we're like, how did you do that? And he said, oh, um, I'm, just, I'm using a, like a nitrogen-based plant food because citrus trees, trees apparently really like nitrogen in their soil. And we, it was just this moment of like, oh, it was that simple. <laughs> I thought we were just like bad at this. Um, and, and it wasn't long before we started getting all these tiny little limes growing in our lime tree. And it was really exciting seeing that fruit. But the point of me telling this story is that no matter how hard you try, you can't actually make a plant bear fruit. What you have to do is you have to provide the right environment, and then it kind of does it on its own. And I think sometimes we read through this passage in, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and we say, okay, well, this means that if I want to be a spiritual person, I need to be more loving, I need to be more joyful, I need to be more peaceful, and I need to try and do all these things. But that's not what it's saying at all. It's actually saying as we press in to the Spirit, as we create the right environment to encounter the Spirit in our daily lives, these fruits just kind of automatically start to come out. And it might take a few years, but if you keep pressing into it, you'll just begin to see the fruit start to grow and flourish. And not only that, but when the fruit grow, they actually are able to nourish the other people in our lives as well. You know, it's so good. It's so good. We just, we've got to stop striving. We've just got to let the Spirit do what He wants to do in us. We've got to partner with what He is already doing. And it's going to be good. I don't know if you have ever met someone 
who captures all of these things really well. I, I think sometimes when I read through the fruit of the Spirit, I, just, I kind of get the picture that someone like that is, is a bit boring to be around, if I'm honest. But I wonder if you've ever met someone who is just so close to God and, and kind of so beautiful and it's, it's almost upsetting how like, wonderful they are. And they, and they have all of these characteristics and you, just, you talk to them, it's like, oh my goodness, how do I be more like you? You know, the kind of character that God wants to build in us is incredible. It's incredible. And so we need to stop trying to be more like that. We need to start being more like Jesus. We need to start pressing into Jesus and watch the fruit grow. So I'm actually just going to read um, Ephesians, uh, Galatians chapter 5 over us because I think in some ways Paul says it here best. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, then you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly wasn't God, for he's the one that called you into freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. For you have called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow your desires of the sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit 
produces the kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. So why don't we stand? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do some work in us.